Well, good evening and welcome to New Hope. And all of you who's joining us in the fellowship hall, welcome. And joining us over the live streaming, welcome. This is a part of worship where we get to continue worshiping our Lord through our finances and through our relationship with our God. You know, the other day, my granddaughter um, was talking to my wife, Marsha, and she was making her plans for her birthday uh, luncheon was, right? Yep. And she was telling uh, Mar Pastor Marsha about, we're going to take her to lunch. We're going to go to Cafe Pesto and have this lunch, and she had it all planned out. And then her father came in and said, oh, should I take the day off and, and join you guys? He goes, no, who's going to serve us? And the thing about this girl is not just having that expectation, her expectation came out of her faith in her relationship with us. You see, as she grows up, she would always give me little gifts. You know, here, Grandpa, this is for you, and she'd make a drawing, or she'll put some beads together with a string or a rubber band or make a necklace, and she'd give Marsha gifts. My mom ended up in the hospital a couple months ago, and she made this little uh, flower and paper and some little thing just expressing her love for my mom. And through her giving, she learned to be a generous giver. And that's out of relationship with us that she became a generous giver. And that's like our Lord. He wants us to be a generous giver so that when we ask things and we have that expectancy of it's going to happen because we have that faith, we have that trust in that relationship that it's going to materialize. And that's how she spoke out of that faith and that trust. And that's how we get to have our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We build our relationship up. You know, it's, just, it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. So with that, I just encourage you to join us where we get to receive our tithes and offerings and express our love to our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this evening. I thank you for this opportunity to uh, share and, and love you, Lord, and just to extend your word and your character to all. But Lord, also that what we receive, we just don't take it, but we give it. We, we move forward um, through the camps this summer, um, through all the different ways of reaching the loss, one relationship at a time, where we get to go out into the community where we get to reach across live streams. We get to have a place such as a fellowship hall where our families can meet and still see the, receive the word of God as a family as they eat dinner or something. But Lord, we just love you first and most. And I just thank you for that time. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> so one cool thing about having family is... Um, the love of the grandkids, but also the really cool stories that they give you. So, Jewel, um, Peyton, who he was talking about, is turning nine next week, and the reason she didn't want her dad to take the day off is because he's one of the servers at Cafe Pesto, so she's expecting dad to serve her. So, but last week, we were actually home, and all the grandkids were over, and the wind was blowing that day, and we had these currents that just kind of went like that. And so I went over, and I grabbed the curtain, I kind of tied it, and moved it off to the side, and my five-year-old granddaughter, Ava, she looks at the curtains and she looks at the window. And then she said, Grandma, do you ever close your windows? And I went, no. 
I, no, I, I leave them open. I, I like them. Why? And she goes, well, how do you keep the zombies out? And I said, zombies? So my daughter, Kristen, looks at her and goes, we don't have zombies here because Jesus is here. So Ava, who's five, says, you have Jesus here? Where is he? And so Chris goes, well, he's in my heart. And she goes, you swallowed him? <laughs> I mean, that's the way she understood it. But don't we all want to know that Jesus is with us? That he's here? That we don't need to be afraid of zombies. We don't need to be afraid of the trials, of problems, of our finances. We don't need to be afraid of any situation that we face because Jesus is right here. Now, we don't have to swallow him like Ava thinks, but we can trust and we can know that he's here. We can be confident that he's near to us. And that type of confident faith is born out of an intimately close relationship with Jesus. And that relationship is built through an ongoing, personal conversation with God on a daily basis. But here's the thing, talking is easy. We all know that. We can talk for days. It's listening that's difficult. And then responding to what we hear takes discipline. Last week, Pastor Sheldon began a new series, The Path to Disciplined Prayer. And he said that the life of our life, the part of our life as believers is a disciplined prayer life. Now, I don't know about you, but discipline is not easy for me. It takes commitment. For example, I commit one day each week to getting my house cleaned to a certain level of cleanliness so that everybody can come over and destroy it again. I commit to washing my clothes once a week. I commit to working out each day. I commit to spending time with my husband. I commit to spending time with my kids and my grandkids. And I commit to reading my Bible, to journaling, and to praying. And the thing is, I have to commit to these so that I can prioritize the time for them. See, my house won't accidentally get cleaned. Time doesn't just appear on the clock for my clothes to get washed or the dishes to be put away. I have to choose to make time for Tom and for my family. And in that same way, that intimate relationship with God that I want, that reassures me that he's here, doesn't happen by accident. I have to seek it. I have to purposely create the time and the space for reading my Bible, for journaling, and for praying. Now, Pastor Sheldon said last week that um, we need to prioritize the time to learn the means and the methods of prayer. And I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't leave us to just figure this out on our own. He didn't tell us, okay, you got to develop this and figure it out. Instead, he took the time to specifically teach us to do it. And if we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and verses 6 and 12, he gives us instructions on how to pray. And what he says is, um, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you notice, when Jesus gave that instruction, he didn't say, if you pray. He said, when you pray. He starts off by assuming that we're going to have an ongoing relationship of prayer with God. He assumes that we're going to approach his Father in prayer. So one of the first things that we can learn from Jesus is that prayer should be an ongoing, very natural part of our relationship with God. And just as we do with every other important aspect of our life, we have to commit to do it on a regular basis. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, pray constantly. Now, some of my prayer time is going to happen on my knees. But because prayer is a relationship with God, it's going to happen in the everyday happenings, in everyday occurrences of my life. That's because it all starts with relationship. That's why Jesus began praying, our Father. It's not the words that are important. It's the relationship. And as children of God, we start from the basis of relationship. We get to approach God just as we would our own dads. I got my license when I lived in San Diego. I was 16 years old. And so every 16-year-old, as soon as you get your license, you think you can drive anywhere, anytime, and be safe. But I couldn't just take the family car. See, I had to approach my dad and had to ask him, can I use the car? And then my dad would decide whether I could or not. And because of where we lived in San Diego, there's a lot of freeways around. So a lot of the times it was like, nope, can't do it. Now here's this thing that, I, that we learned. See, my friends couldn't approach my dad to use the family car. They didn't have the right or the authority to go to my dad and ask to use the car. I had to do it. And when I did, I couldn't go demanding my rights as a child. I couldn't go expecting that, hey, I want it, therefore you have to trust me and I get it. I had to go and I had to respect my dad's role as the head of the household. I had to respect that he was thinking of my best and what would be safest for me. I needed to honor my dad's role as my dad. That's how we approach God. See, when we, Jesus taught us that when we pray, that we can approach God as our father, but we also need to approach him in his position as Lord, as our creator, as sovereign, as king of the universe. Jesus taught us to approach God relationally, our father. And then he taught us to approach him respectfully. Hallowed be your name. Now, we don't even use the word hallowed anymore. What does it mean? And when, when we say it, what, what are we trying to say? So I looked it up in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. And hallowed means holy. It's consecrated, sacred, revered. See, we come to God relationally as our father, but we also respect and honor his holiness. And so tonight we're going to talk about that, that we get to honor and respect God when we do three things. So if you're taking notes on your apps or if you're writing things down, you can write, number one, trust that God alone is able. 
Trust God can do it. See, we honor the name of God when we remember who he is and that nothing is impossible for him. In one of her Bible studies, Beth Moore says it this way. She says that we need to believe that God can do what he says he can do. The Bible's full of examples of people having to learn to trust that if God said it, he can do it. They had to believe that God alone is able. So I want to look at three of them tonight. The first one is found in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah was told by God to purchase some land. But the land that he was told to purchase was seized by the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah wondered, how am I going to carry out this thing that the Lord is asking me to do? And so he says, you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. So he was looking at his circumstances. Lord, you're asking me to do this, but the land is in the hands of our enemy. And then God replies, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So God was saying, hey, are you going to trust that I'm able? That if I told you to buy this land, no matter who owns it, that what I've asked you to do, I am able to accomplish. God challenged Jeremiah, stop looking at circumstances and instead trust that if he obeyed God, that God would fulfill his word. And just like Jeremiah We may sense that God's calling us to do something that seems foolish to everybody else. And if we look at our circumstances, we're like, I don't know, God. I don't don't see how this can be done. And like Jeremiah, we may wonder, how am I supposed to obey? But in the same way that Jeremiah had to trust God's direction, we need to learn to trust God's power over every one of our circumstances. See, God is not limited by the circumstances we find ourselves in. Nothing is too hard for him. We hallow his name. We honor it when we come to fully trust that if he said it, he's able. Our second example. Our second example is found in the New Testament. It's in the account that Luke wrote of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, Luke was a physician, and he was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. And so he writes the story, um, the account of when the angel appeared to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to bear the Son of God. And Mary wonders, how's this going to happen? How can this be? But the angel replies to her, for with God, nothing is impossible. See, God comforted and he assured Mary that he's Lord over the impossible. She didn't need to do anything. She simply needed to trust that what God said would happen, would happen. And like Mary, we may find ourselves in a situation that looks impossible to follow through on. We may not feel that we're capable. We might not feel that we're worthy or that we're strong enough. However, it's not about our abilities. It's not about what we can do. And it's Not about my talent. It's about what God can do. And like Mary, we need to learn to trust that again, when God says it, 
then he can do it. Then our third example. Our third example is given to us by one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew. Now, Matthew details a time that a rich man asked Jesus what he should do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responded that he should sell all that he had and give to the poor. And then Matthew records that this man walked away sorrowful. And then Jesus turned to his followers and he said, you know, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. And then the disciples were astonished and they're thinking, then who can be saved? And then Jesus replied. He looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And just like the disciples, we want to take Jesus at his word, but sometimes what he says seems so hard to grasp. It doesn't seem possible. We wonder, how in the world is this going to happen? How is it possible? But just like the disciples, we need to learn to trust that impossible is not in God's vocabulary. See, we honor and we respect God's name when as his children, we believe and we trust that he is able to do more than we can dream or imagine. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the Ephesians. He said, now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. See, we hallow the name of God when we trust that he can do what he says he can do. But in the opposite end, we dishonor God when we fail to trust him. So I'm going to ask you to, open, if you have your Bibles or your apps, open up your Bible, and we're going to actually be in um, Second Chronicles chapter 14. So I'm going to read along. And what happened is Asa had become king over Judah. Now, he started out by doing everything right. He tore down the um, altars to the false gods. He tore down idols. He commanded Judah to turn and to follow God. He had done everything right. And it says here, um, sorry, the glasses are going on. Um, Sorry. We have sought him. Okay. Therefore he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears. And from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. So listen, he had 300,000 from Judah and 280,000 from Benjamin. And then, then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marisha. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah and at Marisha. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God, 
do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck down the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So he starts out well. But then if we flip over to chapter 16, in his 36th year of leadership, something happened. Because here's this man who started out so well, tearing down altars, commanding the people to follow God, going to God in prayer when he faced three million people. And then in verse 16, I mean chapter 16, verse 1, it says, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to the king, to the Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I've sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded Asa and set the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. They attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. Now it happened, when Basha heard it, that he stopped building Ramah and seized his work. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones and the timber of Ramah, which Basha had carried for building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. And at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Assyria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And then if you go down to verse 12, it says, And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but physicians. See, Asa trusted God in his beginning. He trusted God throughout some of his kingdom. But in the end, he began to look to man, and he stopped trusting in God. And despite God's faithfulness, something shifted in King Asa, and by his 36th year in leadership, he no longer relied on God, but instead he relied on man. And when I read that, I thought, you know, that is such a sad epithet. Like, that's how he ends his life. And you know, one of the last things that Asa hears from the Lord is you have acted foolishly. See, Asa ended his life looking for man to do what was possible instead of continuing to honor God by trusting him to do the impossible. And we have a choice. We can live like Asa, we can look towards others to accomplish what's, what is possible. Or we can live like Jeremiah, like Mary, and like the disciples, trusting that God alone is able. See, we can't try to manipulate God to accomplish our goals. Instead, we trust him to accomplish the impossible in a way that he chooses. In his book, The Irresistible Church, Pastor Wayne Cordero wrote, He is God. How he chooses to make himself evident is up to him. And that's hallowing God's name. We trust that he is God, and then we yield to him. 
We trust that impossible is not in God's vocabulary and that he alone can do the impossible. And then the second thing is, we live in such a way that we bring glory to God. We live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to God. I read this book a while back. It's called Creativity, Inc. And it's by Ed Catmull. And he writes the story about Pixar and its history and its growing. But in one of the chapters, he writes about Toy Story 2. Now, Toy Story 1 had been this great success. And so um, the company that was over them wanted them to create Toy Story 2 and have it go straight to video. So it wouldn't even hit the big screen. It would go straight to video. So they thought, okay, that'll work. But as they're working on the movie, they're thinking, this is not us. We can't do things like this because to go straight to video, you cut, there's things that you cut out, there's things that you can't do, you don't have as much time, you don't have as much money to spend on it. So they went to the company and they said, we can't do straight to video. We want to do um, to the big screen and then to video. And the company said, okay. Well, the problem was at the same time that they're working on Toy Story 2, they're working on A Bug's Life. And so they discovered there were some problems with that. They were having to split the team. They had some assumptions that were mistakes because they assumed since they were making a sequel, it'd be a little bit easier because there's no storyline to come up and all of these things. So all these assumptions played into when they finally had the reel, they weren't happy with it. They were like, this isn't what we want. But the company that was producing the movie looked at it and said, no, it's good enough. It's good enough because it's just a sequel. And the people at Pixar said, no, no. We want to make some major changes. We want to commit to making something better than what we have. And then this is what he writes about that time. He writes, the next nine months would be the most grueling production schedule we would ever undertake. The crucible in which Pixar's true identity was formed. And then he went on to say, at Pixar, Toy Story 2 taught us this lesson, that we must always be alert to shifting dynamics because our future depends on it once and for all. Begun as a direct-to-video sequel, Toy Story 2 proved not only that it was important to everyone that we weren't tolerating second-class film, but also that everything associated with our name needed to be good. Now, they believe that a movie, a product, anything branded Pixar would have to reflect who they believe they are. And they believe they are the top-rated animated movie company. Now imagine that. An animated film company believes everything branded with their name must reflect excellent quality. Our lives, our witness, the glory that we bring to God far outweighs the making of a movie. And if a movie production company believes that anything associated with their name must be good, then how much more important is it that we as followers of Jesus believe and act in a way that reflects the power of God, the ability of God, and the holiness of God? We cannot settle for less in how we live our lives. We reflect the King of Kings, and we hallow his name, and we bring glory to it when we decide to live in a way that causes people to desire to be just like us. 
God gave the Old Testament Zechariah a view of the future. And when he's talking to him about the future, he says this to him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. See, when people want to be around us because they see God is in us, then we bring glory to the name of God. And the way that I speak to people, the way that I respond to others, the way that I speak about others, the way that I respond to different situations in my life will either draw people to God or push them away from him. Our lives will either glorify God or they'll dishonor him. And before I declare that God's name is holy, I have to live like it's holy. Now, Bob Goff wrote a book several years ago called Love Does. And in his book, he wrote about a time that he preached at a church, and it was um, Super Bowl Sunday. And he, he said he, you know, he loves to preach and all that, but on Super Bowl Sunday, the thing that he loves the most is being at home with his wife, he calls her Sweet Maria, curled up on the couch, watching football, which he doesn't ever watch, so he doesn't really get the game, eating caramel popcorn. So this Sunday, he's preaching at this church in another state, and all he can think is as soon as the sermon is done, he's getting in his rental car, he's driving to the airport, and he's going to fly home to Sweet Maria, and he's going to watch the end of the football game with her. While well, he gets to the um, airport, and he goes to the, where you turn in the car, and he somehow managed to get into the line that didn't move. And he said he's sitting there, and he's looking on both sides of him, and the cars are moving, but he's stuck. And he looks up ahead, and the guy who's um, checking in the cars is like, you know, he goes, this guy moves in one of three modes, slow, slower, or not. And that was the line he was in. And he was getting upset. And he was starting to get angry, and he was saying things in his mind. And he was getting a little flustered, and he was thinking, when I get up there, I'm going to ask this guy, what is going on? Because I keep seeing these cars on either side of me moving up, and I'm not moving. And he says that just about that time, he turned and he saw this bucket next to him. And he used to carry this bucket. I don't know if he still does. <clears throat> and the bucket was a symbol to him, that what you put in is what you take out. And that's just like our hearts. What we put into our hearts is what we take out. So he's sitting there, he's flustered, he's upset, and he looks at the bucket and he remembers. So he starts telling himself, I'm putting patience in the bucket. I'm putting patience in the bucket. Every time the car next to him would move, I'm putting patience in the bucket. I'm putting patience in the bucket. Finally, he gets to the front and he opens the door and the attendant says, well, how are you today, sir? I hope you had a nice day. And Bob looks at him and he goes, I did. I had a great day. And the guy looks at him, great, I hope you enjoyed your visit. You know, I hope you get a nice flight home. And Bob says, I certainly will. And he was thinking, it's a good thing I'm putting patience in the bucket. I'm putting patience in the bucket. And then the guy says to him, well, sir, you're all checked in. You're ready to go. Have a nice day. And Bob says, thank you very much. And he starts to run to catch his plane. And then the man says, by the way, that was a great sermon today. And Bob looks and goes, you were there? Now, think about how many times has that happened to us? We're walking in the mall. We're in one of the stores. Something's not going right. 
Maybe we're thinking thoughts in our mind, or maybe we're looking at people, maybe giving them stink eye, or trying really hard not to give them stink eye, whatever it is that we're doing. And then all of a sudden, someone goes, hey, how are you? And you go, ooh, they go to church. And what's the first thing that goes through our mind? Was I smiling? Was I yelling at my kids? Was I giving stink eye? What was I doing? We do that over and over, but you know what? We need to live our lives so that we don't have to ask those questions. If we're living to constantly honor God, then it doesn't matter if we run into people who see us. My daughter Kristen has this really warped sense of humor. Makes mine look really mellow. So she was at a store one day, and she's checking out, and all the um, cashiers were saying bye to this one guy. I think his name was Dave. So he's walking out, they're going, bye Dave, bye Dave, bye Dave. So Kristen decides that, hey, it'll be funny. So she yells, bye Dave, and Dave turns around and says, bye Chris. And she's like, she didn't know who the guy was. You know, Hilo's a small town. People know us, and we know people. And we need to live our lives, and we need to post to our social media accounts in such a way that we bring God glory when people see us. When people who don't know him, they need to see us, and they need to want to meet Jesus. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that we may see, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, we trust that God can do everything that he says he can do, and that we live in a way that brings glory to God. And then finally, hallow God before we hallow his name. Now, when I grew up, we, li- we were military brats, and we moved every three years. So what worked out best for our, my dad was that we would live on base. It was a lot easier. My mom didn't drive, so the commissary and the exchange and everything was there. For us kids, there was the, um, the hobby shop, there was the skating rink, there was this, everything was close by. So every time we moved to a new place, we would live on base. And every time we moved into base housing, we got the same talk. It was... Okay, we live in base housing, curfew is at eight, security comes around every 15 minutes, you guys behave, don't you embarrass my name. Every time we moved in. And us kids, there's me and my three brothers, we just sit there and go, we weren't. Now here's the one thing my dad didn't understand. We didn't care about embarrassing the name. We loved my dad. And we knew that being in base housing was because of my dad's orders. And so being on base housing was a privilege. And because we loved my dad, it wasn't about embarrassing his name. We didn't want to embarrass my dad. That's how we should live. That we love God. And we don't want to embarrass him. It all circles back to relationship. When we were kids, everything we did was because we loved our dad. We didn't want to embarrass him. As an adult, what I do, I don't want to embarrass God. I want people to see me, and I want them to say, you know what, whatever she's doing, that Bible that she's reading, that God that she says she follows, I want him. Because I live my life in such a way that I bring glory to God. And it's not about embarrassing his name, it's because I love 
him. And when we love God, we don't want to do anything that causes him pain. And we'll try to avoid making decisions and choices that cause people to doubt God. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, it's an interesting book. King Solomon says that he set his heart to seek and search out by wisdom everything that's done under the sun. And at the end of the book, after he's experienced just about everything, King Solomon came to this conclusion. He says, now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. See, the word fear doesn't mean to be afraid like you're afraid of zombies or the boogeyman flying or whatever. It means to stand in awe, to be awed, to honor, to revere, to respect. And according to Solomon, all his years of searching, all his years of seeking, and the conclusion that he came up with is that we are to honor, reverence, and respect God. And here's the thing. God doesn't need us to do that. He doesn't need us to honor his name. He's holy with or without us acknowledging it. Honoring God's name doesn't make him any more or any less holy. But hallowing God and hallowing his name reminds us that he's God. He's in control. We're not. And hallowing the name of God reminds us that there's hope. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. And, you know, Solomon's ending is a great beginning. Fear God. Honor him. Reverence him. Hallow God. Because when we fear him, we hallow his name. And so what I want to do is I want to close tonight, and I want us to take a few minutes to do just that. I want us to take time to sit before God and just honor his name. The worship team is going to sing the, words, the song Worthy. And they're going to bring this canopy of worship to God. And under that, I want us to sit here and to honor God. And here's a challenge. Don't ask him for anything. Don't tell him what your situation is. Just sit here and for a few minutes. Let's hallow the name of God. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So that's what we're going to do for just a couple minutes. And then I'll come back up and we'll pray. Okay? my cross you bore so I could live in the freedom you died for and now my life is yours and I will sing of your goodness forevermore worthy is your name Jesus 
creator, you are God, you are mighty in all of your ways, and we know, Lord God, that through you, all things are possible. You are the one who set things in motion. You spoke, and by your word, things came into being. And so, Lord God, as a church, we declare that you are worthy. You are awesome. You are mighty. You are a healer. You are a baptizer. You are the soon and coming king that we get to hope in and that we get to live for. And so, Lord God, we close this evening by declaring that you, you alone, you are holy, you are righteous, and you are true. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.